What's up, everyone? Just say thank you for tuning in today. If you enjoy the show, enjoy the content. Just please make sure to rate, subscribe, and follow the page on Instagram at Overcoming the Divide. Thank you. Welcome back, everyone, for another episode of Overcoming the Divide. Today, we have on Scott Gilbach. Scott is a professor in the political science and public policy department at the University of Chicago, as well as the director of the university's new PhD program in political economy. His research has focused on post-communist states such as Russia and Ukraine, and he has made several contributions to the study of autocracy, economic reform, and political connections. So once again, thank you for being here, Scott. Really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Daniel, it's nice to be on the show. Yeah, so to jump right into today's topic, crisis in Ukraine and the war there, do you believe there's a way for Putin to come out of this while saving face with the people at home? So I think it's going to be hard. So the goals that Putin has articulated, denazification, so-called denazification, the end of supposed genocide in Ukraine. So these goals are going to be, could not be achieved through Uh, any negotiated compromise that keeps the current regime in power. I think that given the rhetorical box uh, into which Putin has painted himself, the only alternative uh, that's available to him at this point, which I believe aligns with his goals from the beginning of the campaign, is to occupy Kiev and install some sort of puppet government. But Ukrainians will never accept that. I think even if there might have been any inclination among some parts of the Ukrainian population to find some sort of accommodation with Putin before the war began. And I think that the segment of the population that might have been inclined to some sort of accommodation like that was was in fact quite small, but I think it's smaller yet today. So uh, as the war grinds on, as more and more casualties mount, as uh, Russians bomb cities, uh, I think that this just makes it uh, exceedingly difficult for any Ukrainian government to find some sort of negotiated compromise with Russia. And so I think that the upshot of all of this is that we're going to see continued war, more casualties, continued sanctions, and gradually increasing discontent within Russia. I don't want to exaggerate the speed with which we may see an increase in uh, discontent. It's it's there uh, among a part of the Russian population. Uh, it's most definitely not there among uh, another probably larger part. But, but over time, uh, uh, opposition among the first group may gradually seep through to the second. Okay. Now, I guess a question to like just segue off that is Putin and therefore Russia will always have influence in Ukraine, whether it be politics, cr- close trade ties, or having populations that see each other almost as family. So why would that not be enough to satisfy Putin besides the NATO concern? Because towards the end, right before the invasion, President Zelensky said himself that joining NATO may just be a dream and not really a reality. So with that, why like what was what would be this ulterior motivation? I, I think NATO membership is a red herring. I, I think that Putin is smart enough to understand that NATO membership for Ukraine was not on the radar screen 
um, was not a realistic possibility anytime soon. I think that the, the narrative that Ukraine might one day join NATO, I think has been important to this conflict in that it's given Putin a tool for domestic propaganda. But the idea that Putin himself uh, or, or that you know, Russia through Putin's understanding of Russia's national security concerns was in some way threatened by Ukraine's imminent membership in NATO, I think is, is, um, is a fantasy. So I think a sort of shorthand for Putin's goals, I might put it like this, that I think that what, what Putin wants is, is Belarus. What Putin wants in Ukraine is Belarus. So he wants a docile government that's aligned with Russia with no threat to Russia's cultural hegemony. So folk rituals, but not nationalism. And I think it's important to emphasize that Putin, notwithstanding a 20 year effort to undermine Ukrainian sovereignty, has not achieved this. That, you know, in fact, I would say that he's achieved precisely the opposite. So even before the war, before this war, there was increased Ukrainian uh, national sentiment in the east of the country. The historical divide between the more Ukrainian West and the more Russian East, which had defined much of Ukrainian politics in the post-communist period, was, was disappearing as, as more and more individuals identified as Ukrainian. And of course, a, a, a consequence of this war uh, is, is going to be whatever whatever the immediate outcome, whether there's a Russian occupation uh, of Ukraine for the indefinite future or whatever else might happen, I think that, 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 that we'll see that as well, that Russia's actions have just further solidified the sense of Ukrainian uh, um, national identity. So you think that, as you put out there, Russia invading almost sway people the other way, because before that, for all these escalations and these tensions, people might have seen themselves more closer to like Russia and not really minded their overarching presence. But now it's more or less that they resent like Putin and what he's doing and will take more pride in being Ukrainian. Yeah, that's right. And I wouldn't tie it to just this invasion, but but also to the uh, the, the the war in Ukraine that began in 2014. That I, I think mean, that that realignment or that that increased sense of national identity very much dates to uh, uh, dates to the beginning of this conflict, if we want to think about it that way. Interesting. Do you think seeing the protests throughout the Russian cities, most notably St. Petersburg, do you believe Putin overestimated the influence that his propaganda state media would have over the public and what they believe and intake? I guess I might put it slightly differently. I think that mm -hmm. Putin probably underestimated the extent of Ukrainian resistance and unity among uh, countries in the West. And so the difficulty with which Russia has prosecuted this war, the large number of Russian casualties, the overwhelming uh, effect of economic sanctions on Russia, I think has provoked a sense of, of helplessness, of a, uh, of a fear that one's future uh, has been a casualty of the war among young people, especially. And I think that's, that's driving the sort of protests that we're seeing 
um, in, in many Russian cities, uh, including St. Petersburg. Follow up to that in terms of unity and among the Western countries, do you think it's problematic that some of the sanctions that these Western countries are, or not even just sanctions, but uh, efforts to limit Russia are kind of just blanketed on the Russian population as well, even to the point that I saw that uh, that the Paralympics, that they're not letting Russia athletes participate in those? Yeah, it's a very, it's, 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 it's a very tricky thing, right? Mm -hmm. So there were similar questions raised um, uh, during the apartheid era in South Africa, where the ostracization of South Africa by the world community uh, affected not only the South African government, key policymakers, but uh, many other uh, white South Africans instead, including some who, who, uh, who were opposed to apartheid uh, as a regime, but perhaps were quiet in their opposition. And so I think the underlying political model, the political model that underlies the sanctions is that by imposing enough pain, not only on Russian elites, but also on the general population, that will encourage Russians who previously might have opposed the regime, but remained silent to oppose it more openly. Um, and that it might encourage those who previously have been supportive of the regime to reevaluate their support. I think that could happen. I, I wanna emphasize one thing though, that, that I, I don't think his, uh, was perhaps anticipated in the design of, of the sanctions, which I should say I, I generally support. But I think that one, one immediate effect of the sanctions has been to encourage a lot of the educated elite in Russia to flee the country. So there's been a race for the borders. There's been uh, 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 th th there's been a run on flights out of Moscow and St. Petersburg and other Russian cities over the past several days. And the people who were leaving, the educated classes who are uh, much more uh, anti-Putin than the general population, these are precisely the folks who, were they to remain in Russia, would be most likely to protest against the regime. And so uh, um, I think one perverse effect of the sanctions may be to, to drive some of the opposition to Putin out of Russia entirely. Now, you know, whether that effect dominates the effect of of uh, encouraging opposition among those who remain, I think that's, you know, you know, the jury's out. We don't know what the answer to that question is yet. Okay. So, I mean, and analyzing or looking at the current trend of domestic affairs in Russia, supplement with how the oligarchy has already lost tens of billions of dollars within the first week or so. Is there a possibility that Putin is disposed of, say, the Russian elites at Tuesday? Because some of them aren't able, like they don't have a dual citizenship and a lot of places are not accepting Russian citizens right now. Yeah, so I think it's important to distinguish among elites. So I, I just use the word elite to refer to, you know, in essence, the, um, I don't know, the business owner, the computer yeah. programmer, mm -hmm. the, you know, the, the well-educated member of the middle class living in Moscow or St. Mm -hmm. Petersburg. 
But the more immediately politically relevant elites, or you know, the elites who would ultimately need to agree on some sort of strategy if there were to be uh, a change in decision-making within Russia, um, these are the individuals who are close to Putin. And that includes the, uh, the oligarchs that we've read a lot about in the West, but it also critically includes members of the security services. And here, I think it's important to emphasize that the security services in Russia have for the entirety of the post-communist period served as an avenue for enrichment by their members. And so these people too are threatened by sanctions in the West. So their villas in the South of France may no longer be accessible. Uh, their kids who study in Britain may have to come home. And so I think that's, that's a, that's a risk to Putin, is discontent among these individuals. Yeah, That's on the one hand. On the other hand, there's no strong history of palace coups in Russia. So Khrushchev, uh, Khrushchev was, was deposed in 1964, but, but uh, for most of the past century, Russian leaders have, have, um, have survived threats to their power. Russian and Soviet leaders have survived threats to their power. Um, and so I think, to my mind, the most likely outcome, at least in the short run, is not a change in policy by Putin, which I think he's just not inclined to entertain. It's not a change in regime, uh, but it's, it's, it's increased censorship, it's increased repression, it's just a more autocratic Russia than existed before the war began. Yeah, I do you believe now it's crucial for Putin to get control of the dissent throughout the Russian censory? Because you like as as I mentioned before, and as people have seen, there are public protests of hundreds or thousands of people lining up protesting the war. So do you think in the upcoming, say, week, few weeks, month that Poon gets a handle on the dissent throughout the country if he wants to say, put it on that this war is not really a war, but a special forces operation and it's a denazification and protection against genocide? I guess I would say the following. It's easier to be a popular autocrat than it is to be an unpopular autocrat. It's, it's advantageous to the autocrat not only to be popular, but to be perceived to be popular, yes. which are not exactly the same thing. So you think about somebody who might be thinking about protesting, that person doesn't want to be the only person standing on Red Square with a sign that says, Nyet by nyet, no to war, right? You think about a member of the elite who is thinking about, about uh, um, trying to depose Putin, you know, that person doesn't want to be the only person who shows up to a coup. And so conveying an impression of popular support is important for Putin. Uh, and in the context of a war that is has the potential to be very unpopular among the Russian population because of wartime casualties, because of the fact that it's being carried out in a neighboring country that looks a lot like Russia. You know, it would be as if the United States was bombing cities in Canada. You, know, you can imagine how difficult that might be for the American population to swallow. Um, 
And because of the impact on the sanctions, I think that there's a threat to popular support for Putin. As a con consequence, we see what we've seen over the past couple of days, which is really an incredible increase in the amount of censorship in Russia. It's the, it's the forced closure of uh, almost all of the remaining independent media outlets in Russia. So the only one of note that survives at this point uh, is uh, uh, Nova Gazeta, which many listeners will know from their reporting over the years, uh, the war in Chechnya and corruption uh, in the Russian government and so forth. Uh, so their editor received the Nobel Peace Prize uh, last year. Um, and then there are some regional outlets that are independent that continue to survive. But, but what we've seen over the past few days is the closure of TV Rain, the last independent television station in Russia, the closure of uh, Echo Moskvi or Echo of Moscow, the uh, radio station that, that in fact is owned by Gazprom, the state-owned gas company, but um, de facto has served as the voice of the urban intelligentsia uh, throughout the post-communist period. Um, the throttling of, of Facebook and, and Twitter, the inability of, of Medusa, uh, which is a uh, Russian news channel, that a uh, news operation that essentially exists in exile, but has been accessible in Russia. Uh, so Medusa, uh, Medusa's website is no longer accessible uh, within Russia. It's still accessible through Telegram, uh, which is how a lot of young Russians now uh, receive their news. Uh, Telegram, for technical reasons, is harder for harder for Russian censors to, to shut down. But I think all of this is a consequence of the threat that the war poses to Putin's popularity and consequently Putin's rule. Um, and, and I think the question is whether this will be enough, whether this dramatic increase in censorship alongside state propaganda will be enough to, to discourage open displays of discontent, both among the, the general population and the Russian political elite. And if it doesn't, then I think that, that at that point, Russia becomes even more repressive, the security services gain even more power, um, and how that plays out, I, you know, I, I think is hard to know. Okay. And just as a closing quick question, do you believe that Poon and Ukraine, or do you believe the world should be prepared for a long-term conflict in Ukraine? I do. I do. I think that even if there's some sort of ceasefire in Ukraine, you have uh, units of the Ukrainian military um, and self-defense units that will continue to fight. And, and here I think it's important to emphasize that the the fight may not be restricted to Russia. I think this has real potential, or to Ukraine, rather. I think this has real potential to spill over into Russia as well. Okay, well, thank you for being here today. I know you have to run, so keep it quick, keep it short, but I always really appreciate this, and I just want to say thank you for your time and your insights today. Thanks so much, Daniel. Of course, really yeah. appreciate it. Of course, yeah, enjoy your day. All right, see you guys. Thank you for tuning in now.